friends, Romans, countrymen, let me your ears, ladies and gentlemen. You are tuned to the MC Lars podcast. It is Monday, February 24th. The Baby Yoda 2020 campaign trail is winding down. Columbus tomorrow, and then Rochester, and then we head back home. So thank you, everyone who came to see Shafe of the Dark Lord, the Double Clicks, and myself. It's been a great tour. It was awesome. This week, I'm talking to Gabi Alter, who plays in a solo project called Yes, Gabriel. And we learned on this podcast, we were both born in the same hospital, Alta Bates in Berkeley, and we learned we were both C-section babies. So we maybe were C-sectioned by the same doctor. That's crazy. That never happens. Uh, this week's podcast is brought to you by Lisette Reimer, Luke, and Nick Harris, the new Patreon Larsons. And shout out to the old ones, Simon Rogers, Peter Valentine, and Jay Starr. Thank you all for your support. For only $4 a month, you could become an MC Lars Patreon Larshan. That means you get two brand new songs a month that you can't hear anywhere else, and you get access to my entire back catalog, which includes rarities and demos and stuff you probably have not heard. Patreon.com slash MC Lars. Check that out. But before you do, check out my interview with Yes Gabriel, and we're going to end with one of his songs from his album, Fall Asleep, which is a beautiful song. So here we go. This is my interview with... Gabby Alter. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here with Gabby Alter, aka Yes Gabriel, in his beautiful apartment. What's up? What's up? <laughs> um, we met through MC Front a lot and you worked with him on a lot of music, and we did one tour together, I think, in 2007. We did. And I think we became friends that tour. We did. That's what's up. How are you doing? <laughs> I remember you... <laughs> I don't know. I you can tell any stories. No, no. I just remember like going to that gas station. I can't remember the name of it, but you were like, let's rap about this gas station. <laughs> Sinclair. <laughs> Sinclair. <laughs> and then we wrote a song about it. We did. A demo. It's actually not bad. We did over the I Got Five on It beat, so I guess we didn't really write it, but... But still... It was like a mixtape. Yeah. And I remember I would always, I was eating so bad back then. And you talk about how I'd get all these gas station burritos and then fall asleep. Yeah. Like I was such a totally teenager on you that were. tour. That's hilarious. And um, touring is exhausting. And I, yeah. and especially when you're like, it's not your, it's not your project specifically. Like when you're part of someone's band. It's true. At that level, you really have to have known them for your whole life and like owe them favors or something. <laughs> well, I just, not exactly. I wasn't like doing damn it favor. I think I was, um, I mean, it was exciting. Certainly the first tour was really exciting. Um, but yeah, you did two tours. I did three. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's just hard. Cause like after a while people on tour get a little bit, you know, like you gotta, you gotta be a road warrior to last in that world. And I'm not that much of a road warrior. Well, and you just, yeah. And also, some people are conditioned for it and some people aren't. That's right. And um, you, do you still play on his records or not so much? Do you collaborate? Yeah. yeah. I do. I do. I really like that part. Um, and we didn't, I mean, he did a bunch of that album, I think, sort of by himself. The newest one? Yeah, the newest one. Um, the Was it Net Split? Yeah. Net Split, he did a lot by himself. But also me and Dave, Dave Chung, who's... Um, in canada is like, that bad spella bad spella yes yeah, yeah sorry and i i apologize dave if i mispronounce your last name but anyway he uh they're in he's in canada but but i love doing stuff with like him and damien because like dave is crazy talented you know i don't really understand how to make hip-hop beats and he just does it but you know how to do chords and notes and yeah make, you're a true musician and that's a different thing everyone has a different skill set and um yeah well I mean, I mean i'm a true pianist i'd say i mean dave dave is really an incredible musician and damien is too but i think production being a production is being a different kind of musician that's an inter interesting thing about hip-hop is that it's the distillation of taste mm -hmm. and good moments and uh, and the rhythm mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. a concept and then once that is like the foundation then you can start building like the tresses and all that flourishes which makes a song a good song great you yes. know and i think that like that's what's cool about his records is they're musical. Yeah. Um, that's right. They're not just like canned beats, you know? No, I mean, and he, he labors so hard over each detail and, uh, you know, and Spella also really, it's just, he's got some really magical 
I don't know what. It's sort of like he makes the programming alive, and yeah. that's really hard to do. And then when you add bandmates yeah. and a documentary <laughs> and all that flavor. Yeah. But yeah. So that's Damien Hess, yes. aka Frontal Lab. So I want to know. You are, I want, I want to talk about your specific journey. Sure. And um, now that we've got that out of the way, I want to talk about, <laughs> you grew up in the Bay Area? Yeah, I grew up in Berkeley. And you know, I was born in Berkeley and grew up in Oakland too. Right. But That's right. But So we have similar frame of references and now we're both on the East Coast. Yep. Um, but tell me more about your life and growing up and your memories. Um, oh, that's a big, that's a big <laughs> <laughs> that's a that, wide swath. That could be the whole episode. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I was born in Alta Bay Hospital. Me too. You too? For real. But different years. Yeah, yeah. You're a lot younger than I am. <laughs> but that's kind of cool. So you have any memories of being born? Yeah. I remember a white light. No, I don't remember being born. I, I mean, I bet I was C-sectioned. I remember. Me too. Really? Maybe the same doctor sliced. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> slice, slice. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Maybe. Who knows? Or whatever. It's totally possible. Um... Yeah, I mean, I grew up, like, I have really good memories of Berkeley, because remember, it was always, like, sunny. It wasn't always sunny, but I have a lot of memories of it being sunny, and kind of, like, nice weather. Um, beautiful we, trees. Beautiful trees. We had a, I mean, I was really fortunate we had a backyard. Like, we were renting our house for the first eight years, but it was a nice house with a backyard, and um, what else? Well, music. You know, I, I realized, I was thinking about this this morning, that there we had these neighbors who were, like, still are friends of my parents, um, the Webster's and their son, Michael, they had two daughters and a son. And Michael was like this kind of prodigy. Um, and he's still, he like writes operas. He's, he's really, you know, he writes contemporary music and he's anyway. So when I was like six or seven, I, I don't know why maybe my parents set it up, but like I went over to see Michael and he explained to me, he was like, here are the chords that like most of pop music is composed of and he showed me the one the four and the five uh -huh. which you know about that right 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 it's like whatever cfg louis, louis. yeah louis louis exactly yeah. and he was like that's most of pop music and then he's like jazz is two five one and he showed me what that is and that stuck with me for the rest of my life it's like weirdly that's the basis of my understanding of all music and you were how old and i was like six or seven so it's probably seven wow maybe so maybe i was eight maybe it already started lessons at that point i mean and that's the benefit of living in an interesting place where people have thoughtful kids who talk about that stuff instead of just like whatever kids talk about. I'm sure you also talked about cartoons and superheroes, oh, yeah. but like to have a connection with someone you look up to, to share that with you, that's like proprietary secret information. Exactly. And you understood it. I guess I did. Yeah. Cause then I, well, here's the thing then ever after that, I mean, I really looked up to Michael, so that stuck in my head. And then I would listen to music and try to figure out what the chord changes were. And that really is the basis of my being a songwriter. And were you then um, playing any instruments or was that, when did you start playing piano then? I started messing around on the piano, I think when I was seven, maybe six, maybe six. I think my parents bought me, bought, I don't know if they bought me, but they bought a piano and then I would be messing around on it and like I'd figure out, um, you know that musical Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat? Oh yeah. You love it, right? It's go, great. go, go, Joseph. Yeah. You know what they say. Shana, not Joseph. <laughs> you'll make it someday. Like, it's so good. And um, especially for like that age, I think it's like perfect. Like for that. Yeah. Like that, it just fit with my brain chemistry. Is it know? Andrew Lloyd Webber? Yeah, it's Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice. That's tight. It's tight. And then, so I was like, I would sit at the piano and I'd plunk out the melodies. Like that was my first, you know, sort of like foray into that. And then my mom was like, so Gabby, you have to take an instrument. And I was like, oh yeah. And she's like, would you like to take the piano? It seems like you're interested in the piano. And I was like, I guess. And I wasn't that into it. I wasn't into taking lessons, but then she made me take the lessons. That's how it felt that she was making me take. She was pressuring me. So I took the lessons. They weren't terrible, but somehow they didn't feel like totally my choice. Mm -hmm. um, but which is weird because I obviously like messing around the piano. Like I was really interested in that. So she did me a favor, I think. Um, but at, but it, there was sort of this feeling of like what instrument like a begrudgment. But then I got into it. Uh, what instrument? Like which one would you have rather have played? Or I, you just weren't trying to play music? I just didn't. I just wasn't thinking. You know what I mean? I wasn't thinking about how do I organize my life. That's not how I thought as a kid. I was just like, oh, my life is just the way it is. You know what I mean? Like it just there's like school. Like I wasn't one of these like super. I mean, I had independent thoughts, but it wasn't about like what like oh I'm gonna learn an instrument. That, that's not how it went for me. So you were really nurtured and um, yeah. shout out to your mom for that. Yeah, totally. Were your parents musical? Rad. Um, 
You know, they are in different ways. Like my mom, my mom, I think played piano growing up. And I think that was part of why she, and her dad played violin. So she wanted, yeah, she like, it was an important value. She wanted to give it to me. Um, My dad doesn't play an instrument and he doesn't listen to music that much either. He's really, he's like a words person, but he totally has a good, like he sings well. Like when he's Jewish, we're Jewish. And when he's singing like, like a prayer, like he's like sings strongly. That's cool. Yeah. So, you know, there was some precedent, but it wasn't like we were like a super musical family. But it was there. Yeah, there's I mean, some there. And your brother. Yeah, my brother's really musical. My mm-hmm. older brother. Oh, you have an older brother? Yeah, older half brother. Um, oh. I mean, technically he's half brother, but I just, just call him my brother. But yeah, he um, he is really musical. And when I was five, he brought, he, he was like seven years older. He came to visit us and he had a guitar. And that was really magical. I was like, oh, what is that? Like, that's amazing. And he was into the guitar. And then, yeah. of course, he gave me basically all of his musical taste. Like when I got old enough, he was like, like, you know, he was the one who was like, he had, um, what's it called? Around the World in a Day, like the Prince album. And then I became obsessed with it. You that's know? cool. Yeah. Um, that's that's a cool older brother to have. Oh, yeah. It was the best. Um, and then Misha is your little brother? Yes. And he's artistic and aesthetically minded too. He is. He's, he's the visual one, um, much more so. I thought I was the visual one because I used to do comics when I was a kid, like you. You did comics? Yeah, I did. That's what's up. Yeah, but then I gave up. But anyway, <laughs> I didn't keep going like you did. But Misha really got into that. And the thing is, of course, Misha is like, is he musical? Well, he... He likes new rap music. He likes new rap music. He has a good ear for it. I mean, I heard some coming out of his uh, room yesterday, and I was like, yeah, Misha's really on it. Like, I don't know what's going on now, but he's he does. Yeah, rap is taking a whole new weird direction, and, <laughs> yes. it's, and there's so much good stuff. Um, constantly. It's just very unorthodox and short. The songs oh, are a minute short? and a half. Interesting. And I think that's a reflection of like the Instagram video limits back in the day. You know, because every, mm-hmm. what's that Marshall McClure in the medium is the message. Mm-hmm. Everything, especially with rap, is defined by the technological elements that predate it and then get like hacked for their use. You know what I mean? Totally. And so that, that t- I guess that ties into the idea that, um, Music appreciation is very circumstantial, mm-hmm. and the way it survives and transmutes, it's like an organic thing. It's like a virus. It's you know what I mean. It's yeah. it's pred- It's music can't exist in space and without any context because well, first of all, there's no air molecules in space, so you can't hear <laughs> it. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Good point. You have to have people around you who make you love music and encourage you. And I think that was yeah. what was so f- f- yeah. cool about. 2006, 2007, linking up with you and all your friends is that my exposure to music was all like kind of older music industry people Mm. who were very looking at music from more monetary, Mm -hmm. you know, major, like the label stuff. And then I met your whole, your crew, your cadre. And it was like, oh, these are people who are kind of existing outside of that and and doing well. And, um, yeah, mm-hmm. that's interesting to know that your musical roots go that early in your life. Oh, yeah, definitely. And um, I mean, I think that my older brother, it, he really influenced me. Like, I mean, I remember sometime when I was a teenager, he gave me like cassettes because this is how old I am. And he, uh, oh, when I was, I had my bar mitzvah, so when I was 13. He gave me like four or five cassettes. It was really interesting. It was like the White Album, um, Neil Young's Harvest, so the first, not Harvest Moon, that hadn't come out yet. Mm. Um, and um, what was the other one? Cat Stevens, Footsteps in the Dark, Volumes 1 and 2. It was like the greatest hits of Cat Stevens. And there was like another one. But I remember like, at first I liked the White Album a lot. Like, no, I think it took me a little while because the White Album is a weird album. You know what I mean? Mm. You ever listen to that? Yeah. It's kind of dark and yeah. weird. Um, but then, but it was like I graduated. Like each year I would like, suddenly realize how amazing the album was and it would relate to my experience. Wow. It was crazy. So that I didn't really get to harvest or footsteps in the dark until the end of high school. And then all of a sudden it was like, I mean, Neil Young has this song, which actually I don't know if it's on harvest, but it's called sugar mountain. Yeah. It's like, you know that song? Yeah. And it's so eerily, it's like eerie and it's eerily about leaving childhood. It's like, you can't be 20 on sugar mountain, right? It's like basically going back to like when you were a kid at the carnival, but like, he's like, you can't be 20. Oh no. He's saying basically like, if I go into my escapist world of fantasy, I'm not 20, but I am in reality 20. It's that feeling when you're 20 and you're like, man, I'm old now. 
you yeah. know, which is a hilarious, which is hilarious from my <laughs> vantage point now. But anyway, but yeah, but you are old compared to like being a kid, which is when you were at the like white hot nucleus of life. Right. So, that, oh, that's poetic. Yeah. <laughs> um, that music that you're exposed to, yeah, on Sugar Mountain, are, that music yeah. stays with you forever. I, I, totally. I have found this Neil Young, it's called like the Live Rust album. It's like a live oh, yeah. record. Yeah. I remember I got it at like a church rummage sale for like a dollar and um, I listened to that so much because I like how one half of it is him with just with the guitar mm-hmm. and then the rest is with Crazy Horse. With Crazy Horse. Band. Yeah. And um, yeah, Neil Young. And then I realized I was a huge Nirvana fan. I still am. How mm-hmm. he was such an influence on Cobain and- Mm-hmm. all that um yeah what was your feeling so you would have been in high school when or middle school when grunge happened like 91 wh- where were you middle yeah, school uh no i was in high school so were you a fan of like alternative rock and flannel and all that or were you kind of more outside of that i was more about outside of that although I, I remember when that stuff happened i remember first thinking pearl jam was like dumb even though i think i did like i i, I think i like jeremy like yeah that song. But, you know, and, and like, but I remember then, oh, Nirvana, it took me a little while, but I was like, there's something like, you know, they're, they're sort of grittier than Pearl Jam. They're nasty, not nasty, but they're just, you know what I mean? More like, visceral. Yeah, more visceral. Yeah. And I think that ultimately I did respond to that. I was like, I get it. Like, it's all about like, cause I already like, liked some punk music, you know, I'd heard some Black Flag and you probably into them, right? Yeah, that right. was like an early influence, but, yeah. but like Black Flag and yeah, like I got punk and then so I got Nirvana, like just that, like, you know, here we are now. Like yeah. that's like, ah, like, um, but it was melodic. That was, yeah, it was melodic. That's yeah. right. That was the, that was the difference. Yeah. And I love that. Cause I pretty much needed melody, um, except for Fugazi. No, but they had that one sitting in the waiting room. Yeah. Like that's a good melody. Yeah, it's good. Why? Because I can't get up. I sampled that and Ian Mackay let me use it for free. Really? Because it was for a independent thing. So I, I just oh. emailed him. Really? And so he said you can use that. So shout out to him. Those guys are amazing. Yeah. It's just amazing. Like they really are what they are. They're not like fake punks. They're like punk punks. They talk about community and existing, I mean, outside of the mechanism of the industry, right? Yeah. That's right. That's amazing. Okay. But so in answer to your question, like at the time, the things I was mainly into were, I, I did like some of that, but, and Nirvana, I definitely appreciated them. I was really into Public Enemy. And I was really into Tribe Called Quest. And I was really into, interesting, a lot of rap. And then I was really into, um, I mean, Prince I'd been into for a while. But there was somebody else that year, like, who was big. But yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't like a grunge person. That is, and yeah. And I felt, and I felt like it was kind of overblown, to be honest with you. I mean, no disrespect to the grunge people. But obviously some disrespect, because I'm <laughs> saying I didn't like it. Well, it was like when... Like um, Stone Temple Pilots. I just couldn't get on board. Yeah. There was a lot of emulation of these hits, right? Yeah. And because they were making so much money. I mean, it was yeah. what happens with trends. It's like what happened after Blink-182, all the emo bands and pop mm-hmm. punk bands. It became a whole stereotype of itself. I the see. counterculture becomes mainstream, right? Yeah, but it's that's right. the difference is, I guess, after that, ha- after Nirvana happened, popular music could have that grittiness in a way that it really didn't before. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. And good thing, yeah, there were a lot of good things. I mean, even that song like, Hello Mom, was like Tracy, the burdens of being upright, you know, the woman Tracy, somebody. Bonham? Bonham. Yeah, Tracy Mother, Bonham. Mother, mother. Yeah, actually, we know somebody that works with her. That's uh, right. You know that guy, right? Um, John, he's in the band. That knows Weedus. Cornmo? No, 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 John. Um, it's like he and his partner. Oh, oh band. Late Cambrian. Yeah, Late Cambrian. Like he worked, he like produced her album or something. That's dope. But anyway, she's um like whatever that song was, like, Hello Mother, Hello Father. Like that's super musical, that song. And she's a violinist, but like that also came out of the grunge thing like and then she i'm helpless i'm yeah. losing my mind which yeah. that comes out of the pixies right the pixies apparently were why nirvana did the loud soft thing right. they just took it from the pixies right right which is cool and they and they um pixies were great they made sure to shout them out and and be like this like kurt always said smells like teen spirit is intentionally a pixies tribute oh cool he said that yeah, I mean, there you go. Like, but, you know, good music is going to beget more good music. That's kind of cool. So, yeah, and yeah. that's the thing we're always chasing as songwriters is to create those timeless nuggets mm-hmm. that will be covered by people, remembered, and define, like, moments of our life. And it's it's bigger than music. A great song transcends time, right? Theoretically. Theoretically, yeah. I mean, I wonder about that a lot. I think it does in some ways, yeah. I think, I think 
Because like with my album, which I I spent a long time on, it was kind of coming to that realization. It's like, I want to make something that I think, like I won't just think it's good today. I'll think it's good in a year or in 10 years. And I don't know if I've succeeded or not, but I think I part, I at least partly did. So when did your record come out? It came out last year. And so how do you feel listening to it a year later? It's interesting. I haven't given it a full listen a year later. I did listen to it kind of recently and I was like, I felt embarrassed about the vocals in some spots. So I'm not sure now if like, it's hard because I was also, you get this weird thing, right? Where you're assessing the commercial viability of what you're doing. Mm. And by commercial viability, it's sort of like, what does a person who doesn't know me and doesn't care about me think when they hear this? And so I had a moment where I was, I just felt really insecure. I was like, well, if I were a better singer, but I think, you know, like the reality is like, I'm, I'm a good singer for what I'm doing and I got good takes. Like that was a hard thing to realize, like how to get a good take. And mm. often it was the first or second take. Like that was it. Yeah. That's when you have the magic. Right, right. Right. And then afterwards it's like, you're trying to create thing and people can hear that. So I, I guess ultimately I think I feel pretty happy with it. And then there's some things I like, Oh, like, I guess I would change that, but mostly I'm happy. Um, I was, we were listening to some of the songs earlier and I noticed you have very good tone mm. and pitch. And that's something that, um, you were saying like some people naturally have it super well, yeah. but some people don't have it at all. And we're called rappers. Hey, hey. no, I'm kidding. Rap, I, some rap, the whole thing now with rappers, they are all now really good singers. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, and also a lot of them sing through autotune. So who even knows, right? Like is, is Drake a good singer? I never know. Cause he's always got the autotune or whatever it's called on. Yeah. I think he's probably a good singer without the autotune. If you, if you were with like a guitarist and they just did something that would be probably good. Probably. Yeah. I mean, the dudes had a, a while also to like probably get better. Yeah. He right. kind of typified that and popularized that singing rap style post two thousand nine, where, where yeah, where you have to sing as well as you rap. Yeah, which is cool. I like that. I like that. That's come back in and and how like Frank Ocean, who's more, he's not a rapper, right? He's a singer, but he's sort of like then embraced the other side of that. Oops, sorry, yeah. the other side of that equation. It's like now he kind of like uses a lot of the rap rhythms, but he's singing. Yeah, it's cool. That's what's up. Yeah, um, talk to me about the record. And um, the process in deciding you wanted to start this project. Well, I'd always worked with other people, you know, like I worked with Damien with MC Frontalot on all of his records and he was like the lead guy. So I would kind of contribute. I'd be the contributor. And then I have this whole career writing musicals where I'm like part of a team. And sometimes the team is bigger. Like I had a team where there were four people and three songwriters. I was like one of the songwriters. And then a lot of them, it's been me and like, um, and a playwright. But a lot of the times the playwright writes the lyrics with me. But even if that doesn't happen, it still feels like I'm beholden to this larger story. So I kind of just was like, and a lot of times I would record them and I'd be like, you know, this didn't turn out the way I wanted it. I didn't really feel like I could totally stand behind the, the, the tonal quality or the production. So I finally was like, I just want to make something where it's like me. I'm in charge. I have to do everything and I have to figure out how to make this sound like me and the occasion for it to turn out, I had this breakup, which had, I guess at the time, like all the significance to me that it took like a number of years to kind of work through the, <laughs> to work through it. It was therapy for you. Yeah, it was. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I guess. I mean, it sort of feels like, well, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, thanks. No, it's, you don't have to be sorry. I don't feel bad about it anymore. But yeah. it's like, you know, it's, it was some really long emotional process I was working through and working through, you know, using the relationship, I think as a kind of like, way into that and so yeah so that was sort of like this is what i have to say and it's gonna be this very personal statement and so i made it a very personal statement and it was your statement exactly it was my state it wasn't yeah. a collaborative statement and i'm really a collaborator i think at heart i love collaborating like i'm writing these kids songs now it's super fun to get assignments like i like that kind of thing nagin farsad who i work with a lot I've worked with a lot. She, you know, I love her. She'll be like, hey, Gabby, I need some, you know, I wrote some songs for, not songs, I wrote the soundtrack to her movie, th uh, uh, Third Street Blackout. And so it was like all about like, I want this vibe, I want that vibe. I love creating vibes. Yeah. But I was like, well, what is it that I want to say? And I think that really, that did, it sort of was like, oh, I'm stepping out as an artist in a different way now. That's like, cool. Yeah, which, you know, is something that you've always done. Like, you're always, you know, it's like, I'm Lars, I'm doing... <laughs> The largest thing. I mean, I know you're not like doing like these sad songs about your breakup, but like I've done those though. You have though, yeah, I'm sure you have. Um, <laughs> to make a personal statement yeah. is, I think it's so important, and um, I think the thing that bolsters it and allows it to be a strong statement is when you take away 
commercial concern. Mm -hmm. And when you're able to surround yourself with other things that are keeping your business together so you're not poisoned by that like that the whole thing when you're doing it because like all the, be the best songs and songwriters yep they wrote those songs in moments of like just emotion giving into the emotion not giving into the quickbooks excel sheets <laughs> you know what i'm saying well i think yeah the, the other thing is like previous generations of artists and particularly musicians had this luxury of not having to deal with the spreadsheets if they were lucky to be signed. Yeah, if they were lucky to be signed. But I mean, here's what I'm thinking about. Like some of my favorite artists, certainly growing up, like the Beatles and Prince. For some reason, those ones keep always coming back to me because I think I liked how they always wrote in a bunch of different styles. Hmm. Like Beck is like that now. Have you heard Beck's yeah. new album? Yeah, was it Hyper? Yeah, Hyper uh, Space. Hyperspace. It's awesome. It's awesome, right? And it's sick because Beck, I mean, Beck is always, he's like Bowie. He just morphs through styles yeah. and they never feel fake. It always feels like, oh, it's like a Beck yeah. joint, but Beck is now like absorbed like those weird like no wave sort of retro synth 80s people. Yeah. Like he just ate them, <laughs> but now it sounds like him or like, you know, anyway, so that's really interesting. And then the Beatles did exactly that, right? Like the Beatles and Prince, they were both just like, and they was there's sort of like animals that like would like absorb and then spit out like this sort of, you know, Prince would just be like, oh, I want to do new wave. And then he did 1999 which was like this weird like funk jam, but like electronic thing yeah. that no one had ever, you know, the people like what? And then he did, so, and then he absorbed the Beatles and he did Around the World in a Day, which is like a crazy psychedelic, but it totally sounds like Prince. Like, it's just like, you can't say that sounds the Beatles, you know, it's just yeah. like, so anyway, point being, I think that what's interesting to me is like, I think you're right. I think there's some zone where it's like, we're just trying to please like the inner you but the Beatles were like on a six month schedule to produce albums. So they, they had a lot of commercial, but somehow they were able to stay in touch with what they were doing while doing these commercial things. And I guess until Brian Epstein died, that's when they're kind of the mechanism of the business fell apart. And mm. the Apple, the Apple, not, I was gonna say the Apple store, but their, their Apple headquarters, or whatever, yeah. they were giving too much money away to friends. And that was kind of the beginning of the end. That's what I've read. Interesting. And so, but also I suppose in a weird way, they, they stopped having commercial concerns at a certain point, right? Like in a sense, they were just like, well, we're still contracted to write these albums, but also they were just aware, like they didn't need money anymore that much. Yeah. They were just like, we're doing our thing. We're like the artists that everyone's paying attention to. And then they did Sgt. Pepper and they did all these crazy like amazing things. And the experimental stuff is why they're so canonized. Correct. Yeah. Um, you know, people go both ways on this artist and he just dropped a surprise album mm. today. And by the time this airs, it will have been a few weeks ago, but Eminem, he's, yeah. he's absorbed and morphed with like what hip hop has done. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, not everything's great. And his first few records are definitely like his best, but right. I think he's still awesome. And the way mm -hmm. he, the way he, he stays current with rap and, works with the new artists. I think that's cool. Yeah. I like him a lot. Yeah, yeah. He seems great. I should say seems because I just haven't been that up close. I did listen to his last album and I was like like the one where it was like sort of a angry Eminem album. Yeah. And I liked it. I was like, yeah, he's still, I mean, he's such a, he's just so good at what he's doing. He can rap. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's like, all right. Were you ever into Dylan? Not a huge amount. Although I have to say certain Dylan songs when I've heard other people, like my brother sing them, I'm like, oh yeah, that guy's like a monster lyricist. It's just, it's not just lyric. It's like the lyrics, you know, like in folk songs where like the lyrics and the song, like the lyrics are most important, but the music supports it. And he writes good melodies. It's just, he's amazing, but his sound is not a sound I've ever been attracted to. Yeah. Like I'm more into pop music, sadly. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. All his probably the most like the most famous versions of his songs are covers like Hendrix uh, Watchtower. Oh yeah. Maybe not. He's got some classics. Yeah. I mean like a Rolling Stone people know that. That's true. From him going, yeah, the damn, he woos the wild. Yeah. I mean, whatever. He's amazing. I think I'm just missing some of the, like there's some way I couldn't quite get into that, that sound where he's like, ah, neat. Actually, now that I think of it though, there's, the, he has beautiful early songs like book of the rain, book of the tears. Bucket of moon coming out of my ears. Bucket of moonbeams in my hand. Like that stuff is really cool. And you're like, oh, that's where like all of indie music, all of indie folk and right. came from that, basically that. <laughs> like, oh man, that's, yeah, like an iconic 
I, well, speaking of genre emulation, like the Nashville Skyline record and mm -hmm. like the way he he did rock, you know, it's yeah. so that brings yeah. me to my next question. Yeah. Do you, will the next um, Gabriel record, do you think you're going to go in a new musical direction or do you like kind of the vibe you got on the first one? You know, I think what was interesting about that project, if I do, if I do another Gab Yes, Gabriel thing, because right now I've kind of swung my attention back to A, musicals and B, like writing these songs for a South Korean English teaching company, which I mean, anyway, like basically like I've moved back into my collaborator thing because it's more what I'm used to and what I'm comfortable with. But if I do a Yes Gabriel thing, what I realized listening to the Beck is like, but also like with that album itself, I kind of realized I didn't have a template. Like I was figuring out the template as I went. So it's kind of like, I probably will have to figure it out as I do it. And my guess is it's not going to be exactly the same because I already did that. And the thing is, um, you can't, the, the bass player from Limp Biscuit said this, and I'll never forget this. Wes <laughs> Borland. Yeah. I think he's a bass player. He, Limp Biscuit. Yeah, I saw this in the guitar magazine. He said, no, and I, it's always stuck with me. He said, okay. you can't know aesthetically what something's going to sound like before you start, because if you do, your vision is limited from the onset. And I remember I wrote that in my journal. True, and, and I was like, that's such a good quote. You can't know what something's going to sound like because then the fun is taken out of it. There was this quote at, at mm -hmm. the end of yoga every morning. Um, they do an inspirational quote. And yeah. someone, and I forget who this is attributed to. We could Google it. They said, if I describe, if I communicate to you what my dancing means, why am I even dancing in the first place? Whoa. So, yeah, you don't know. You can't know unless you're doing something specifically like in a genre to reference it. You don't know what the, what it's going to sound like. Yeah, and and one thing I found exactly one thing I found doing this album was like I was really used to doing different genres, right? Like it felt I feel very comfortable what I'm doing now with these kids songs is like it'll be like okay, it's a song about going on a vacation. So I'm like, all right, I'm probably going to do this as a bossa nova because it's like you know sunny and <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's it's like the it's like the thing that the go to, the easy go to is actually in some situations that's correct, but then making my own album, I was like, the problem is that's that's not what you want to hear. You want to hear something that feels true. And that means it's going to be something that's not exactly like what someone did, which is hard. That's really hard work. You know what I mean? It's so easy to make something that sounds like something that's been done. Not something that sounds like, but you know, but, but it's like just even to nudge it over a little bit is a huge difference. And you have to pay attention to that kind of detail in order to nudge it that way. That's right. what I think. That's and what I learned. Plus, Going back to your early musical memory, yeah, it's only so many chords, and especially in a certain yeah. genre, there that's even more limited. That's right. There, it's it's limited chords, and you know how you limit the chords, and like all that stuff, and like what the voicing is, and what and what instrument. It's so important. Yeah, like with a lot of these songs, I did maybe so. There are five songs. It's an EP, actually. It's not a full album, but I did like at least with one song, I think there were like three different versions, maybe four, and they were really different. It was like electronic. I did an electronic version of one I did. I just couldn't find a thing that felt totally right. And then my friend, um, Ben, was like, slow it down. Like I was just, I'm always playing everything too fast. And he was like, slow it down to 120 BPM. And I did. And then he was like, drop the key like, like by like a major third. Because I've been singing it like really at the top of my range. He was like, just drop it. So suddenly it became this really haunting ballad. And that was that like, it didn't totally solve the song, but it basically created the basis for this totally other vibe that then right. is way better than anything I had ever done before. Tempo is important as well as instrumentation. Absolutely. Super important. Everything is important. That's what's freaky. Yeah. It's and all. That's true. But yeah, no, you're right though. Tempo, instrumentation is incredibly important. There's so many, but it's like, you know, you kind of like, you have to start somewhere and build on that thing. What I find is you build on thing and if it doesn't work, you start over and you build on something else. Yeah. I, um, I remember when my first, my first managers had this great, um, songwriting advice. Like if a mm -hmm. song is you're working on it and it's just not coming together, it's like sometimes you're trying to save a friend from a battlefield who's so badly hurt that if you take them to triage, you're not going to survive. So sometimes you just have to leave them there and then start a new song. That's a good, yeah. That's important. I like that. <laughs> Between that and the Limp Biscuit quote, I think we've got a lot going. We got a lot of metaphors. Yeah. <laughs> so you, where'd you go to college? Uh, I went to Wesleyan. And what'd you major in? By the way, I went to Wesleyan with Damien, with MC Frontalot. Um, yeah. Before he was MC Frontalot. I majored in 
something called College of Letters, which is a, com- a interdisciplinary humanities degree. That's what's up. So, what was the, what were your disciplines? You did everyone just fall asleep? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, everyone's. I think a lot. The whole, the whole. What, everyone's, what they, everyone who's listening to you is like, yeah, yeah. We also have interdisciplinary humanities. No, everyone. Um, this podcast is a lot about defending the humanities and people who are making oh, a living who did not major in engineering or computer science, which is tight. You no, know, it if is you tight. want equity and security, go for it. Yeah, and also if you have that kind of mind, I mean, shit. I if you're brilliant, me, I wish. Yeah, if you're yeah. brilliant. But anyway, what were you saying? So was it? So what were your what were your disciplines you you integrated? Music, uh, did you do music in college? A little bit, but I didn't really study it that much. I mean, well, okay. So here's what happened: the the disciplines were um, English, philosophy, and history. You could take courses in any of those departments to get credit, and then you had this what was called colloquia, which were like a seminar format class every semester That's that you so had good. with all the other majors in that major of your year. So it'd be, and then, and we would discuss certain periods. So we started off with, like, we probably, you probably did something similar at Stanford, right? It was like Plato and, Oh yeah. Right. They call it IHUM, Introduction Humanities. Yeah. Introduction Humanities. Yeah. So that was like, but that was like all of my, my whole major was Introduction to Humanities. So you, yeah, that's cool, man. So you have yeah. a, a wide understanding of this, like of a lot of knowledge. I, I suppose it's hard to say. I mean, maybe it was just more of an awareness of like, there's a lot of different like schools of thought. Um, yeah. I, I don't know how knowledgeable I am. You know, it's like, oh, I know what Descartes said, mm. but everybody knows what Descartes said. I can't remember like the details now. Well, what, what was his thing about? I think therefore I am. Yeah. It was yeah. like, I think therefore I am. And that part I think revolutionized philosophy because the idea of like, oh, like thought is like what makes like it was sort of like proof of existence, but then then he immediately went off in the wrong direction because he was like, I can philosophically show that God is what made me think. I think, mm-hmm. and then people are like later were like, you can't do that. Like at some point, philosophy was like, we can't use God in philosophy. You have to like that's a separate branch. You um, can't use that as the answer to every question. Well, not only that, but you can't prove the existence of God. Like that's not a provable oh, thing because yeah. they're using logic and philosophy. And so that ultimately was like, became a different brand that became theology. But there were, then there were people like Kierkegaard who were kind of these weird, like super Christian philosophers. You remember yeah, this? And then, yeah. but Kierkegaard was sort of like, you know, the knight of faith. He was all about faith. But the whole thing about faith is like, you can't prove it. Like that was the, that was his point. Descartes thought you could, you could be both rational slash logical and have a proof for religion at the same time. It was like, you can't do that. Interesting. Yeah. What do you know about w- Wittgenstein? Um, he thought everything was just a bunch of words. Yeah. Right? That words defined our reality. And yeah. everything other than that is not important. Yeah, which I think is, I wouldn't go so far as to say dumb, but I'm like, I think what the problem is that that led us down the terrible postmodern rabbit hole that now it's hard to climb out of. Well, I think we're climbing out of it really fast because of like the the reality of watching people lie a lot uh-huh. in public. Uh-huh. I mean, they were doing it before, but now it's just like, everyone's like, but not everyone, excuse me, like 52% of the people are like, but these are a bunch of lies. And then everyone else is like, no, but that's because they're watching like a disinformation channel or they're watching channels of information that are way more distorted than the other ones that have like a certain amount of distortion. Um, David Foster Wallace loved Wittgenstein, and that's, oh, yeah, that's yeah. what I've been learning about him. Because I last year I read Infinite Jest and did a bunch he of did. songs about it for Patreon. Amazing, and that was an exhausting but rewarding, like Odyssey, <laughs> finishing that book. But um, are you going to read Ulysses next? You're just going to tackle all the like. I do want to do Ulysses, Gravity's and Gravity's Rainbow. Gravity's Rainbow. Oh damn, dude! That's what's I, up. I couldn't read. I can't read Foster. I love David Foster Wallace's essays, and he's amazing. But I can't read his fiction because he was so depressed. And I feel like when you read his fiction, it's too depressing. I mean, his characters are all a piece of him. I yeah. did. A, I did a great podcast with this guy in um, Kentucky who wrote like the definitive Infinite Jest guide. And we talked about, he kind of explained the book in terms of the plot because it's a very hard to understand book. But once you get the plot, everything kind of falls together. But this idea with Wittgenstein that like words allow you to, yeah, create this sophistry of, um, of making arguments and really getting away from reality. And the whole premise of Infinite Jest is you watch this video, you get sucked into this machine and you get away from reality. That's like the plot device. These terrorists try to Uh use it to... Canada and America are one, so they try to send it to America, to all the high-powered people, to make the... As a form of terrorism, so Canada will separate again. Mm -hmm. So this... But anyway, so the metaphor that 
reading the book is like that because it's just this assault of words into your mind and it's like he tried to he tried to prove Wittgenstein with that book that the burden of proof was on like if you're able to absorb this book you can realize that like words are so all encompassing like this book that will consume your life and it did mine life for a few months for sure wow i'm that i'm still talking about it a year yeah. later yeah <laughs> I mean, I love David Foster Wallace's essays. You know the one about where he goes to the porn convention? Oh, yeah. That's a good one. It's amazing. It's dark. <laughs> it's really dark. But I feel like what's, the saving grace of the essays are that they're so funny. Like, he, it feels like he's the smartest guy, you, the smartest teacher slash older brother you've ever met. Yeah. But he's not talking down to you. No. He's explaining and you're like, you're so much smarter than me, but you're breaking it down for me. Like, I feel like he's just like, and but so. You know, I say, and but so. Yeah, that's true. That's I love really that. Um, and that his eye was such that he would um, do like a review a cruise ship or review a um, <clears throat> porn convention. He, has, he did a great book called Signifying Rappers with this guy, Mark Costello. Okay. He did right before he started his master's or his PhD when he was living in Boston. Yeah. And it's a great I think late 80s critical history of the origins of rap and where it's going and it predicts a lot and it talks a lot about the social stratification that rap tries to mask. Mm -hmm. It's great. It's a great book, Signifying wow. Rappers. That okay. was my introduction to him and a friend of mine in college was like, you should read this. And then, then he died like four or five years later, but I didn't know about his other work. And then I was like, oh, anyway. Yeah. I recommend that book. Okay, cool. Yeah. That's great. Um, musical theater. Musical theater. So did any other... Um, My dirty secret. Just <laughs> any other alumni from Wesleyan go well into musical theater? Nah, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think anybody's had any success in that art form except for me <laughs> from Wesleyan. <laughs> um, do you I know Lin-Manuel Miranda? No. I mean, I met him... Is he younger? Yeah. Yeah. He's he's five. He graduated five years after me. Yeah. There's two... I have two Lin-Manuel Miranda stories. I mean, you know, that guy's amazing, obviously. And also, like, we're, like... I don't know. I don't know how humble you can be, but like having made the greatest musical in the world or whatever, but he, he seems like he's, he's doing pretty well in that, like better than a lot of people would do. Um, but no, he actually, so here's the thing. I met him um, at my 10 year reunion. I was back there with Brandon. I think we were like playing at the, the, um, you know, there's like a party at the reunion weekend yeah. for all the classes. And like we were, we, I was in a cover band and we were going to play. Anyway, so I met, I met him and I was like, uh, oh, hey, like I know, like I knew a friend of his from Wesleyan because I lived with this girl. She was my first roommate in New York and we had sublet, we subletted this place. She was super nice, Sarah. She also worked in theater. So they were friends in theater at Wesleyan. And she was like, so I, and I had seen In the Heights because it was just coming off Broadway that is now being made into a movie. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was his first Broadway show. And I was like, hey, Lin-Manuel, or Lynn, I don't know what to call him. I was like, oh yeah, I was roommates with Sarah and like, congratulations, I saw your show, it was awesome. He's like, thanks man. And again, seemed really like nice, cool, down to earth person, which I think he is. Um, by all by all reports about him, he's yeah. awesome. As what, Which is like, how can you be that talented and down to earth? Oh. He must take after you. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but yeah, but he, uh, those, anyway, those are my two stories. Um, I think, yeah, that guy, you know, he deserves all the success he's gotten. And what's really cool is he really, you know, he did revolutionize musical theater, which I think had been stuck in a rut, you know, and he, it was very white, um, still unfortunately very male, but that is changing a little bit. Uh, actually, it's changing faster than, you know, and there's like the Alanis Morissette musical, there's Sarah Bareilles wrote a really good musical. But anyway, but he, you know, he stepped in and he did this, he did In the Heights, which was all about, you know, being Latino and living in Washington Heights. And then he did Hamilton, which speaking of being true to yourself, apparently he was just obsessed with it and thought, I heard him say, and hopefully this is true. He was like, I thought this musical, like I was really into it. First, I wanted to do a mixtape. Yeah. Just wanted to do a mixtape, right? And he's like, but then I thought, you know, this would be really great for like middle schools and high schools because it's about history. Like he literally was like, I did not anticipate this reaction. Yeah. And I'm like, I think that's just because he was just into what he was doing. And he put in the, you know, I mean, he, he's, but he's into everything he does. He's really obsessed with it. And you can tell he really cares. And it's like coming from the heart. And so. um, talking about rappers who can also sing, right? Yeah. Like his skill right. set is, is, is expansive. And act. Yeah. And it's crazy. Yeah. It's, I, don't, I don't get it. I mean, it just whatever. Some people, I think he works really hard and I think he's really gifted. He, um, yeah, that's true. I remember the first New York <clears throat> Times review of Hamilton was like talking about how, it was cool 
and it was speculating on will this be successful? And I remember the last quote was, Broadway needs Hamilton more than Hamilton needs Broadway. Oh. Meaning it was this, and 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 it was kind of like they had seen it on the first night, and it, no one knew it was going to become this phenomenon. Yeah, and that's the thing. A lot of people in the industry, <clears throat> I I spoke to one I remember before, and I was like, Hamilton is really great. This is before it was like a hit, and she was yeah. like, I don't know, a rap musical like, and I, like that was like a lot of people kind of like, rah, rah, yeah, yeah, about history. But but there is a there is an element of luck. You know, there's no moment of the wind at your back, and I think like you and Damien had versions of that, right? Where I'm not to take away from what you guys did at all, but it's like you kind of recognized and were the right people to recognize something that was happening on the internet. Yeah. Like I wasn't, I just wasn't internet savvy, you know, and nor was I really equipped to take advantage of a lot of those things. And I wasn't the voice of the people who were on the internet. And you guys, I think both kind of like <laughs> nerdy people yeah, you st- and really hardworking and brilliant people. And you stepped in and there was that moment of like, oh, yeah, that's nice. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, you think about Hamilton, you yeah. know. It's nerd. It's nerdcore in that it's a yeah. nerdy history rap musical and totally. Um, yeah, I mean, you've done how many musicals now? Five? Uh, more than that. I think I've done. Wow. I think I've had done worked on seven or eight, and then I'm now working on like one new one, and I'm hoping another one. Yeah, so something like that. But yeah, I mean, I started working with my friend Dominic Ma. We did them after high school and at this um, small theater under a pizza place in Berkeley called Laval's and then Laval Subterranean. And then we did that like a bunch during college. And then I did one with Damien after college. Um, what was that one called? Young Zombies in Love, which oh, yeah. is now available on Bandcamp and I think maybe Spotify. That's what's up. Yeah. Did you re-record it Definitely or it's the original tapes? Well, no, it's the original because we spent a year and a half making that album. That oh, was like wow. our first proper album. Oh, so it's well produced. Yeah, it is well produced. I mean, you know, there's it, there are things that I would change now and it would blah, blah, blah. But yeah, like we worked on it a lot. Is it, well, how would you, like, if someone were just listen to that, yeah. how would you show, like, describe the genre of that? I mean, it was, it's kind of like eclectic pop. Yeah. Ecle- you know, there's a lot of like, there's sort of a country-ish song there's a, although it sort of sounds like Led Zeppelin doing country or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's like a kind of a drum and bassy. It's like, as a Damien, Damien found some sample. Yeah. Uh, some loop. That's the Amen break. You know that break. Beat, oh, right? is it? Is it the Amen break? I mean, that the one you just did. Oh, then it probably is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, shh, don't tell anyone. But, uh, and then, yeah, we did. Um, it was a lot of different genres. That was the kind of stuff I did back then. It was just like you know, a real array of genres. I like working different. I think that styles. was that was a defi- This would have been the early two thousands. Y- yeah. Well, we did the album. I think in like yeah, like ninety nine two thousand. That was like the DJ Shadow era. Like just 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 pastiche. All the ma- yeah. mashups. That was like there was a lot of pastiche. We were into pastiche. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's good. Thank you. Because you were some ur- urban postmodern kids coming back to the Correct. Bay Area yeah. where the internet was fostering creativity and brilliance. Exactly. But um, That's I mean, what's up. <laughs> but then I moved to New York and I started, and then I entered, uh, Tish has a program, a graduate program for musical theater writing. So I learned all of like the more, not all of, but some of the more traditional ways of thinking about. Did you do your master's? Yeah, I did my master's. That's awesome. Yeah. At Tish. Yeah. At Tish, yeah. yeah. Which is still you know, a great like lots of great people come out of there or go there. Um, but anyway, they're there, you know, they're like talk a lot about drama and like, how does this serve the story before I was just like, well, this is a fun song. It's cool. And I'm in charge and no one is telling me no. Yeah. And then there was a lot of critique and I was like, Oh, that's what you get with MFAs. You get a lot of critique and all of a sudden you're like doubting yourself. You're like, what did I do? Oh wait, maybe I don't understand everything. I thought I understood everything. I, I wonder if I thought I was the golden child, but now I'm like, do you think it made you a better artist or a more like concerned artist? Both. Yeah. I mean, I think it made me, yeah, a lot more like second guessing. Um, and, but in some ways I had to, you know, it's like, if you want to become truly, I know some people don't go through that, but I just realized, oh, like heart. Well, here's another thing I realized. Cause I, I don't know that I'd ever done this consciously. I had a class with this guy, William Finn or Bill Finn, we call him, who is really like, he did, um, he has this Broadway musical called Falsetto Land, which is about kind of about a version of him, like coming out as gay and it was big like very revolutionary at the time because it married the idea of like self sort of like the singer songwriter like talking about yourself with musicals and not in the way of like Joni Mitchell or something but he kind of took that idea and it it changed things because it was like he was writing from himself from this very personal place Mm. so in his class 
he would be like, he'd want you to write from yourself. And he was scary because he would just tell you what he thought and not in a nice way. Sometimes I think he might be different now because this was a long time ago. But, you know, so you come in with something. Sometimes he'd be like, you're like, I don't get it. You know, and you'd be like, oh, okay. You're like, like he'd it really- call you. He'd call you on it. He'd be like, you're not yeah. being real. Uh. So I started writing things that because I was scared and uh, I had to show people stuff in him that things that and he would be like write about your thanksgiving like write a song about what you did on thanksgiving he's just like tell it like it happened so i did and like that was that i think up to date that was like one of my best songs because it was really there was something real it was almost something like i didn't control it i did control it but i didn't it was something that was about the real experience because that's that was the assignment and then i wrote a song deep in february which was also about like a heartbreak because he was like write a song about february so i just was like okay you know, and I, I try not to, you know, it's sort of where you're trying to put on a hat. I wasn't trying to put on a hat. Yeah, that's so. interesting. Well, that goes back to this idea that if you, if you're from the heart, if you're really interested in doing it, it comes out better. Hamilton's an example yeah. of that. The, yeah. Um, I mean, of course, the, and that guy worked so hard on those rhymes, but like, yeah. I mean, he's gifted rhymer as well, but. But yeah, but it did absolutely come out of his, you know, his great heart and great intellect at the same time. That's what's amazing about Hamilton. It's like, damn, this guy's really interested in U.S. history. You know, and it has that moment where, spoil, have you, you've seen it, right? Yeah. Yeah, this where, and we're going to spoil plot, where they're dealing with the death of the son. Right. It's that moment. That's right. like this, a really sad, touching moment in the middle of like this hurricane of history and and energy and then it can be touching too and i think yeah i mentioned that because the best songwriters can can reflect the gamut of human emotions of course some artists are better at sad songs and some are better at funny songs but being able to do all different genres and all different emotions is hard it is hard i mean i don't think it's not like any of us i don't know some a few of us can do like all genres but but i think like yeah for him you know what's cool about hamilton is you can really hear like that guy loves, he loves two things. He loves a lot of things, but he loves musical theater. Like he really loves like musical theater, you know, right, like real right. musical theater, not like, yeah. like he, he would write to Sondheim and stuff, Stephen Sondheim. Yeah. And, but he also loved rap when he was a teenager and you can hear all the Biggie and the Eminem, you know, and he specifically like tracked characters to be like, he was like, yeah. you know, so-and-so is Busta Rhymes. Like he talks about that. So he absorbed those people's, rap styles and then he could sort of twist it and put it into a story which i think is what i try to do too not what i mean what we all try to do but without you know i don't really do the rap thing but but he was being very true to what he loved and his influences yeah the fluency of you that's interesting you know so going back to your bar mitzvah cassettes yeah right being like this is the neil young character this is the prince character channeling right. them. i'm sure that's yeah, I mean, well, it's interesting. So here, so can I, can I talk for a minute about a current project? Yeah, please. Okay, so currently I'm working on this musical which is set in East Germany in the 1970s, right? So it's under communist rule. And so the, the, project, the project is to do songs that sound like they were written in the 60s and 70s, oh, cool. right? So that is what I'm now. So I'm like, okay, like for one character, I was like, who's like the right, she's like a woman, right? Uh-huh. And she's kind of like, like trying to get this guy to like come join like the rebels who listen to rock and roll. Cause you're not supposed to listen to rock and roll. Right. Right. So her song, I was like, who's like an analog in the seventies. Right. And I thought about it and I was like, Joni Mitchell, but I was like, no, that's too like flowers in the hair. I mean, Jess not later. Joplin? Just could be. Yeah. But I was like, that's not right either. Yeah. Cause it's not Patty Smith. It, yeah. That was, that was one possibility. I'll let you answer. I'll yeah. quit interrupting. But anyway, but I, it came down ultimately to Stevie Nicks. Oh, but partly because of the moment, because of the dramatic moment, she's sort of seducing, not, I mean, not like seriously seducing this guy, but there is a certain sexual element, you know, sort of romantic, like, don't you want to know what's on the other side? But, yeah. but I also wanted, is that but, the name of the, the song? Uh, no, actually there's another song called the other side, Oh yeah, but it's different. But this one is like, it's about, uh, her kind of like, you know, it's like beckoning him, but into this like sort of mysterious world of like where rock and roll kind of like bridges you into this other world that's like free. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, Stevie Nicks. I got chills for a moment. Yeah, right. Because I can imagine her and and that archetype fitting into the story. And, yeah. Um, but so that's, so I'm really using specific artists on that project because I'm like T-Rex, like I use T-Rex a bunch because um, the producer suggested it and also because like, 
tier. I don't know. Like doing Bowie is a, it's really hard to do Bowie and not just have it sound like a Bowie pastiche. Uh-huh. Some people actually, I know a guy who's really talented who does do that. Uh-huh. But for me, I'm like, I don't quite know how to get into Bowie in the right way. And which Bowie, I guess 70s yeah, and Bowie. Which Bowie. Yeah, yeah. 70s Bowie. Yeah. Cause he's got, you know, where he's sort of like glittery, but like, it for the right project but i feel like this project is like not quite right for the glittery bowie and i also listened a bunch to the berlin trilogy he has a trilogy of albums called the berlin trilogy and like i was like i can't quite i don't know it's too on the nose maybe maybe because it's it's he when you think of berlin and and the 70s you think of him and iggy pop riding the trains yeah heroin (laughs) and heroin yeah but the thing is for me it's like it's also there's something about me that i haven't i can't quite adapt it internally that's cool yeah. that you're not going to force it. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I might just be afraid. And like, if you were like, I'm going to hold a gun to your head, make a Bowie track, you know, I would probably be able to do it. And maybe I'd be like, oh my God, why didn't I do this before? But yeah, who knows? Um, that's cool, man, that you have yeah. this fluency in all this genres and you're doing South Korean kids songs, <laughs> solo records, musicals. Yeah. I'm always inspired and encouraged by your breadth of skills. <laughs> and you're, you're humble. You don't brag about it. Well, I guess I don't. No, yeah, no. I gotta, I gotta get better at self promotion because the thing is, when I do try to self promote, sometimes I, I think I'm too arrogant. So it's like, you gotta. I don't know. How do you do it? Uh, you, you have a good line there. Thanks. I mean, I just try to keep my, I try to keep, I try to not take myself seriously and be, and have all my stuff is a little tongue in cheek. But then I, when I do that, I can then drop serious messages. So I try to just make sure everything I promote, mm-hmm. I do it in a way that feels like I'm excited about the avengers so that's why i wrote a song about it or you know what i mean right that it's like but it's so annoying and no one wants to read tweets about new records and i mean i think the most i don't know i (laughs) mean i was gonna say one of the most effective thing is word of mouth and like if certain people you trust or certain podcasts you listen to right so let's i wanted to so as we wrap up i wanted to talk about the yes gabriel project and i wanted sure. you to promote it here okay great yeah um well if you can you can find it on spotify and all the other places apple music etc it's called yes gabriel and the album is yes gabriel it's five songs um if you like you mentioned this and somebody else i know did too sea change it's a little bit like the beck sea change slash what's the other one that's morning oh morning phase yeah morning phase yeah. a little bit like those albums um i didn't quite intend that but um it's because it's a it's a like breakup album basically um what else if you're going for breakup you might like it nick drake sounds a little like nick drake um yeah and it's 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 there for consuming you can also buy it on Bandcamp for not very much money um and if you like it let me know that's what's up where can people get a hold of you on social media um i am on twitter at gabby alter g-a-b-y-a-l-t-e-r same on facebook um i think those things and instagram they're all the same. That's cool. Yeah. Keep it concise. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. So this, let's introduce this song. You played it for me earlier. Mm-hmm. Remind me the name. This one's called Fall Asleep. And you played all the instruments except the string parts, right? I actually, this one, I hired an upright bassist as well. That's amazing. Yeah. Which I guess is a string instrument too. But you played the, this, the uh, what's the main instrument? Yeah. The guitar? Or yeah. Piano? Yeah. Yeah. There's, oh, you know what? Just kidding. Um, no, the, I did play a lot of acoustic guitar on this album, but this was an, a track that my friend Sean McArdle played acoustic guitar on. We recorded the, this is what happened. We recorded it in his living room at the time. Um, he now lives in Scotland. I think he teaches uh, ethnomusicology. So we recorded it in his, in his living room in Oakland, uh, California. We um, did, I don't know, just like he had these two guitars. They were both really good guitars. We recorded with some, you know, like Audio Technica mic. Yeah. And it totally later, like I went back and I was like, it has a great vibe. And the the parts, he came up with the parts, I mean, with my direction, but some of it was just his ideas and the guitar sound beautiful. His playing sounds great. So I just built the track on that. And I did like one or two vocal takes and it turned out those vocal takes, you know, again, there was this magic of like, I just was feeling it because it was early. I hadn't like lost the spirit. Yeah. Um, and I just built it. I was like, you know what? The the sound quality is not perfect, but it's good enough, especially for this kind of like very heartfelt, like personal indie thing. So um, yeah. And then I recorded real strings in a studio in Brooklyn. That's cool. Yeah. So it was a true bi-coastal project. Exactly. That song especially. So yeah. it's called Fall Asleep? It's called Fall Asleep. And this is um, from the Yes Gabriel EP. 
with Yes Gabriel. Um, my guest, Gabi Alter, is a really cool guy, and I appreciate his friendship. And I appreciate um, getting coming to your apartment and getting to know you outside of your other projects. Because you're a really great collaborator, but it's like cool to learn about how you've been blazing your own trail, man. Thank you. Thank you, Lars. And it's really nice to have this conversation. You're a good interviewer. You're very, you're very, I mean, you are you're very thoughtful and like you're a very positive person. And I think it's cool that what you're doing with like your platform is to talk to other artists. And, you know, it's like it's 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 a community. It's like towards strengthening a community of artists. And I think the last thing I would say is just we really need that. I mean, I think it, we've touched on like the record industry, but I think capitalism in general is not very pro-human, pro-survival or or pro artist. Mm -hmm. So I think the more that we have, I mean, you know, we're still trying to make a living. We still live in capitalism, but, um, but the more that we have like these conversations with each other, the more we get to know each other and support each other is like, that's great. And it's how we can fight the uh, totalitarian police state of this dystopian future <laughs> yeah. by writing songs. <laughs> That'll definitely be one way. <laughs> that's what's up. Um, so yeah, <laughs> if there is a totalitarian, <laughs> Uh, who knows who yeah, knows but, know. um but um yeah so okay well that's that's a good yeah. note to end on no i was joking about it because i th i feel optimistic about the future people are like oh yeah. everything's so bad yeah things are bad but things are good yeah things are things are good now look we we're alive now that's really good the fact that we're alive we have uh, um possibility right now and that's what's really important and we do have this window you know of 10 12 years um you know to fix the environment to stop fossil fuels from destroying the planet. So I think that's exciting. To have a, a, a um, leader who was not elected by a foreign power, you know? Sure. I mean, that's what's up. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't want to just fall asleep. This is Fall Asleep by Yes Gabriel. <laughs> Holler. Nice. No, but not to end on like a bad political note, but that's what's up. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll see you around Maybe the next time you come into town It was nice just to spend some time with you It's been a while since you came round Do you still have my shirt? The one with faded letters that didn't quite fit you used to wear it when we went to bed And I watch you fall asleep in it Oh, I'd watch you fall asleep Oh, I'd watch you fall It would be hard to find Some way back to where we fell out of time Sing the song I knew When I was with you And remember how it rhymed Guess I'll eventually forget The way I hated when you smelled like cigarettes and brushed your teeth so you could kiss me before we fell asleep. Oh, I'd watch you fall asleep. Oh, I'd watch you fall asleep. I'd watch you breathe.
I guess I'll see you again Maybe someday, I don't know when When I do, I won't recognize you As the person I knew then You better catch your train Take my umbrella in case it starts to rain when we lay in bed and we fall asleep to it Beautiful song, very sad song, very personal. Thank you. Yes, Gabriel, that was awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, this week we have the MC, MC Lars, Lars Patreon, Patreon Lars of, of the week. We've got Rob, aka Rob Pichini Jr., who was a podcast guest, but because he's such a good friend, he called in and left a message about the time we met. Check it out. Hey, everybody, what's up? This is Rob Pichini Jr. Uh, I'm going to talk about the first time I met my good buddy, MC Lars. It was about 2007, and my friend John Schiffman auditioned to be your drummer for your first full band UK headlining tour. Uh, the guy that you had for bass dropped out like a month before the tour, and John recommended me for the gig, so I auditioned. I came all the way up to Park Slope, Brooklyn, on a bus with my bass on my back, I show up, we rehearse for about an hour. Lars wants to go get Taco Bell, so we go down the block. He says to me, hey, Rob, that's your first name, right, Rob? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, what if your last name was Banks? And it was just like but a little rim shot action. And from that moment forward, we've pretty much been the best of friends, telling really stupid dad jokes to each other all the time and occasionally playing some shows together. Well, that's pretty much my story, and I'm sticking to it. Love you. Bye. Thanks, Rob. Love you. Next week, ladies and gentlemen, we have an interview with my friend Zach Vitter, homie from Carmel Valley, who's been doing a lot of interesting things since we graduated high school. Check that out. Thank you, everyone, for coming to see us this tour, and uh, thank you to the Patreon Larsons for making this episode possible. Hope you're all having a good week. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye. Oh, yeah, I want to give a plug for Rob's band, Red Hymns. They recently played a show with me in Philly. They're so good. Check them out. Bye.